The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH. I'm Andy, your host. Today's Thursday, so I'm delighted to welcome back my regular guest, great uh, speaker, great researcher, great presenter, wonderful missionary, Dr. Peter Hammond. Bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, I am. Thank you very much, Andrew. Excellent. And folks, we've got another blockbuster for you today. That's probably the wrong word, but it's uh, this has been going around the alternative media and even leaking into the mainstream media uh, uh, in recent years. The title of our show is The Real Story of Farm Murders and Genocide in South Africa. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today with this topic? Well, Andrew, you know, this is a hard subject, but it's so important, and it's it's one of the great untold stories out there. There's uh, Many people would be aware of the fact that uh, Stephen Mitford Goodson wrote the book, The Genocide of the Boers, uh, speaking about the Rothschild banksters' goal to uh, destroy the Boers because they wanted the gold and the diamonds, uh, which was in the areas where the Boers predominated, and they brought the Boer population down dramatically by the scorched earth campaign, which destroyed 30,000 farms, killed millions of livestock, uh, dynamited their wells, blew up their homes, herded the women and children to concentration camps, uh, wiped out literally a quarter of the uh, total population of each uh, of the concentration camps every year, so that in two years, half of the uh, women and children had died. And uh, that was at a time when women and children uh, were uh, part of bigger families. So the average Boer woman back in 1900 was having 12 to 14 children. So you can imagine what a devastation it was uh, in the early stages of, of development of our country, losing so many people. Uh, and it was plainly uh, organized by the Rothschilds. Uh, deliberately, it was the goal. And that was documented by Stephen Mitford Goodson in his book, The, the Genocide of the Boers. But today, we've got other people who are targeting the Boers for genocide. And and we've got it. It's exploded into the news in recent days in South Africa because there was a particularly heinous, torturous, demonic, savage uh, murder of a young farmer, just 22-year-old man, uh, in Senegal, uh, which is a part of the Orange Free State, right smack in the middle of the heartland of South Africa. And uh, the... The two of the murderers were caught very quickly thereafter, 
uh, by other farmers, not the police. The farmers caught them, handed them over to the police. Now, at the trial for these uh, accused murderers, uh, several thousand farmers turned up uh, uh, to the police station, to the magistrate's court, presumably to show their outrage, solidarity, and so on. And the police panicked and opened fire. Uh, they said warning shots. And uh, a police armored vehicle uh, charged towards the um, very peaceful um, uh, farmers, the, the Afrikaans farmers in the area who had gathered. And uh, the farmers uh, then reacted by grabbing this vehicle and turning it on its side. And uh, that picture, unfortunately, has gone around the world uh, of uh, a police vehicle on its side. And much later, after the farmers had left, the uh, actual vehicle was set on fire. And there's the video footage around showing that a black policeman walked over to the vehicle. And when he walked away, you could see the first flame starting to come from the vehicle. So it looks like an own goal. However, the impression given by the media reports, which are very dishonest, is they show the crowds of farmers and then they show the burning uh, police vehicle. And the impression given is that the farmers set alight the police vehicle. Uh, of course, that's not so. They also say that that uh, the police attack, the police were attacked by uh, the farmers, which is definitely not true. We've got independent journalists and observers who were there, and there's a lot of video footage of it, and I've examined a lot of it. And there's no doubt that the farmers were peaceful. There were uh, uh, terms that the police was a storm, that the farmers stormed into the magistrate's court. Well, actually, you can't enter a magistrate's court without uh, going through metal detectors and weapons aren't allowed inside the magistrate's court and so on. Uh, and none of the farmers who were inside were armed, and yet they were opened fire on. I think the police panicked when they saw so many. And uh, we're talking about black police, mostly ANC uh, appointees. Many of them would be party members. And so uh, while you've got some good policemen out there, uh, you've got a lot who are just there because of their party membership or their color, BBBEE, -E, that's broad-based black economic empowerment, affirmative action, race quotas. So uh, it's a mixed bag out there. And uh, uh, bear in mind that with the farm murders, many police and army and uh, national security have been implicated in, in these murders. And that's been documented very well uh, in, in the book, Kill the Boer. Uh, so... At any rate, this cynical conflict, this uh, this is something people aren't used to because they used to Marxist mobs, mostly black people under the EFF or ANC banner, marching, looting, burning, destroying, attacking, and so on. The sort of things I think you've seen BLM and Antifa do in uh, streets in America and in places like Minnesota. That sort of thing's normal. You never see white mobs or protesters doing almost anything. And I've probably led more protests of Christian people in South Africa than everyone else combined. I've led well over 100 protest marches to Parliament and uh, to uh, protest against everything from them trying to take away our guns back in the year 2000 in Taubenbeke, protesting against attempts for the government to close our Christian schools, to close our Christian radio, radio stations, and uh, the different um, attempts to legalize abortion, pornography, perversion, uh, to change definition of marriage and all of that. So 
I've done, I've led a lot of protests and we've never thrown anything at anyone. We've never broken any glass. We've never looted. There's never, we don't even leave litter. So when we march, it's very orderly. And um, my marches have been many cases, very multiracial. In many cases, it's been predominantly white, uh, depending on what the issue is. Uh, but none of the marches I've led have ever had any clashes, confrontation, violence, uh, or damage to property whatsoever. So uh, they've got used to it. I remember the first time I marched to Parliament, we marched there, we were given a police escort, and when we arrived, there was armoured cars and police with riot shields uh, all lined up uh, between us and the gates of Parliament, and we, we laughed at this. And uh, the next time, they didn't even bother to uh, uh, give us any police escort, and there was just traffic police uh, for helping to cross the traffic light. So they know that... Christians in general, uh, whites in particular, don't do any violence. So suddenly our news media is full of reports about these white terrorists rioting, I'm quoting from South African television. So the same people who call violent rioters who burn, loot and murder protesters called these peaceful farmers who came to the place where these farm murderers, these terrorists who had horrifically tortured this man for hours uh, while tied to a pole in the most gruesome ways. Uh, they came there and they were peaceful. They are called rioters and terrorists by the same media who call everything BLM and Antifa and so on as protests. So talk about Newspeak, double think, uh, 1984 George Orwellian terminology. It's, it's, it's all there. So th what this has done, though, is it's, it's brought this matter to the public consciousness media, and it needs to be the the case of farm murders in South Africa. And I don't know how many people realize there's a war on whites going on worldwide, and particularly in South Africa. I would say that South Africa is the canary in the coal mine. Uh, we are in many cases a, a test case and a, a, a laboratory where things are being tried here, where we have been turned into a minority in our own country and being persecuted uh, by uh, our own government for simply being white and uh, murdered and tortured in the most horrific ways. Do you know that the most dangerous job in the world today is a white farmer in South Africa? Farmers are being murdered at a rate four times more than even the police. Being a white South African farmer is far more dangerous than being a bomb disposal expert in Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, for example. And Farmers experiencing the highest rates of crime, violent crime, anywhere in the world. So we've got a few groups that try to speak up for farmers. One of them is Afroforum. And uh, Afroforum has said that farm murders is the wrong word. It's a misleading term. Farm terror and farm tortures are the more suitable terms. Because farmers in South Africa are being murdered at rates of 220, 100,000 per year. Now, to put this in uh, perspective... The average rate worldwide of murders is six per 100,000. So you can expect in any given year, out of every 100,000 people in the community, about six people to be murdered. Now, that's the average worldwide. Now, in South Africa, farmers being murdered 220 per 100,000 per year. And when you're talking about farm murders, uh, and by the way, we're talking about thousands of farmers and their family members have been tortured to death under the ANC rule in South Africa. Uh, if any of the listeners can remember back to reports about the Mau Mau in uh, Kenya. So during the emergency in Kenya, 
uh, the Mau Mau Rebellion, it was called, 1950s. It was horrific, and people were horrified worldwide, and there were books written like Uhuru, which is uh, the Swahili word for freedom, uh, and that was uh, about the murders and tortures of farmers in Kenya. Do you know that the total number of farmers murdered in, in Kenya was 36? And that went round the world shockwaves at the, sh at the uh, brutality, the demonic savagery that was manifest in these, uh, they called them machete murders. Uh, they, these horrible uh, kind of cutting instruments used for, for cutting a cane and, and grass out there. And uh, these sort of the African version of a sickle which would have been used in, in the Soviet Union. Hence, the, the sickle is, was in the Soviet Union's uh, red flag, uh, whereas in many African countries like Mozambique, they've got the machete in the flag with a cross with an AK-47. It just shows the different mentality um, that, that the farm uh, peasants' uh, symbol is not the sickle as in the Soviet Union, but the panga or the machete uh, uh, in, in Africa. So... When you're talking about farm murders, you're talking about family members being tied up, cut with machetes and pitchforks, burned with boiling water or hot irons, having hot irons applied to every extremity of the body, having little boys drowned in, in boiling water so that their skin peels off. I don't want to go into all the gruesome details, but just to give an idea of some of what we're talking about, we're talking about savagery. Uh, as exhibits in some court cases, drills, which were used to drill through hands and feet and so on. And uh, the people murdered with blow torches and, and things like this. So there's no uh, understanding of why such incomprehensible savagery. And I must say um, that... Uh, this was so traumatic to to study. Uh, and, um, of course, Andrew, I live in South Africa. I was brought up in Rhodesia. We we've, were brought up knowing about the Mau Mau in Kenya and the Simba murders in, in the Congo and the raping of the nuns in the Congo by the Simbas and Marxists there and the butchery of, of farmers in Rhodesia uh, and of missionaries such as New Adams Farm and uh, Elam Mission. So... I, since I was a little boy, I've been aware of of the the rules of of the game. So, we when we were on farms in Rhodesia, you'd never switch on the light without first closing the curtains. You'd never open the front door without first switching off the light behind you. You could never frame yourself against the light. And, and uh, whenever I've been on farms, it's been normal. There's the rifle by the door. There's a rifle or machine gun over the mantelpiece. There's a pistol by the bedside. Um, the Mothers even go uh, about their normal rounds or hanging up washing. They might have a nine millimeter on the hip. They might have a revolver on the hip. They might have a nine millimeter submachine gun slung over their shoulder. Uh, that was normal uh, for me growing up in Rhodesia because uh, uh, the farming communities were targeted. And so when we went on school outings, the school teachers carried machine guns. And um, one of the things you'd be doing is looking ahead to see if you could see any recent roadworks on, on roads, which might indicate that, that a landmine had been planted. You have to be alert. There could be ambushes. There were drills that we were taught to do uh, in the event of uh, the school bus coming under attack and, and so on. So uh, this this was normal life. So for me, I've been brought up with the fact that there are Marxists out there who can be brutal and savage. Uh, 
and um, you can be attacked or die at a moment's notice and you've got to be ready to react and uh, this this has been life for many Christians many farmers uh, certainly for missionaries all over uh, war-torn parts of Africa and unfortunately there are so many casualties we're talking about in the tens and hundreds of thousands uh, in just the Congo and in fact it got to the millions millions of people actually died in the Congo ultimately through uh, the the Marxist mayhem that went on there but now it's our turn South Africa and so for decades now we've been living in condition orange and often red uh, and it's just a normal fact of life that you and your uh, wife and children need to be armed and ready and alert and uh, we live in in that sort of environment and why do we live in that sort of environment because we've got a government who sing songs like kill the boer kill the farmer and we've got a government which encourages the demonizing of whites and uh, for example when member of parliament peter kronovold who's a, a friend and he leads the group called the freedom front in parliament peter kronovold a member of parliament was reporting on these horrific tortures being inflicted on farmers in south africa today in parliament and he was talking about a man being being tortured with a blowtorch for hours you know feet, arms, so on, uh, deliberately kept alive while they tortured him, about a little girl uh, being gang-raped uh, while being crucified, uh, literally nailed with hands through her hands and feet to the kitchen table, and the parents restrained and forced to watch while their little girl was gang-raped, and then they poured gasoline over her and set her alight. And he's talking about this savagery in Parliament, and there was laughter throughout the ANC member of parliament benches and one of them shouted out more laughter now Andrew how do you respond uh, to Peter you you, like you, you broke up there what did the, one of the members of parliament shout out the members of one member of parliament shout out bury them alive and wow. it was widespread laughter throughout the entire uh, ANC, EFF, uh, that's the Marxist groups in Parliament laughing there. What kind of people laugh about that sadistic savagery? And Andrew, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've probably read Hellstorm, the, the book uh, on, on the death of Nazi Germany. Absolutely. You, you would have read Hellstorm. Yes. Well, uh, I was sickened to read that and I was quite traumatized uh, reading it because um, I know a lot of people who, who uh, lived through all that in Germany, and I wondered why And she told me a few things uh, which was traumatic enough, and how Allied soldiers uh, treated them when they came there, and uh, the many aerial bombardments she endured, over 69 aerial bombardments, a thousand bomber raids, and all the rest of it. Uh, and uh, to to read what my mother and grandmother and aunts and uncles and others from my mother's side of the family went through. My dad was on the 8th Army side in, in, in North Africa. But uh, to, to understand what so many people I know actually went through. And uh, you, you could understand they suffered, but uh, I had no understanding until reading Hellstorm how much they'd suffered. Well, obviously, the extent of the savagery that was... Uh, foisted upon the Germans by the Allied victors, especially by the Red Army, uh, uh, of course, was the worst in history. 
uh, no people in history have endured the sustained savage uh, aerial bombardments and systematic rape, torture, and uh, uh, absolute degradation and starvation, deliberate starvation that was foisted upon them there. But while the extent was vastly worse uh, in Germany, the the type of demonic hatred and savagery and tortures being foisted upon whites in South Africa, particularly in the farming communities uh, by these ANC and EFF supported terrorists, uh, is exactly the same. We, we're facing the same kind of thing. And as a missionary to persecute church for over 38 years, I've experienced some of this, seeing pastors crucified in their churches. Why would they do that? Speaking to people who had their pastor burned alive or uh, seeing uh, people who had had their hands and feet chopped off, uh, people who uh, had first had their feet cut off and while they're struggling to escape and then these mobs deliberately, systematically killing them just bit by bit, but keeping them alive as long as possible to, to extend and intensify the torment or forcing family members to watch the torture of someone else. This is something I've, I've eyewitnessed. I've spoken to first-hand eyewitnesses. I've documented, I've written about, I've publicized uh, in the killing fields of Mozambique, Faith in the Fine Sudan, Holocaust in Rwanda. And uh, uh, in, in the course of my missionary work, I've, I've experienced some of that. And when I was a prisoner of Marxists, I've heard from their own lips, I am the devil. I'm not only a Marxist and a Leninist, I'm a Stalinist. I was trained in Czechoslovakia. And having that kind of word for my interrogator in Mozambique. And, and so I, I know something of this, but when you speak to the farmers, and as a guest speaker, missionary, traveling around, I've stayed with farmers. And, you know, as the sun starts to set and they start to barricade and prepare and lay out the weaponry and uh, prepare, because every night the farm could be attacked and they're basically on their own. There's nobody out there who can come to help them. They're all on their own. And you can sometimes not even see the neighbor's house. It's so far away. And these people are very remote and they are terrorists targeting these farmers. And so the farmer, his wife and his children, even down to the youngest child, all has a role and responsibilities and they've got to do things. And so it's it's so important that people understand what is being foisted on, on our, our people. And it also puts things into perspective because we've got out there people giving us a false narrative continually, uh, a false narrative in which black people are always virtuous victims and white people are always villainous, uh, evil uh, people who are uh, without any redeeming features. And the depiction of uh, Christian whites in Africa in particular in, in the worst light possible. And somehow or another, our uh, assailants and the terrorists and the Marxists and the murderers and the torturers are always portrayed in the nicest light and everything they do is justified. And just take these kinds of, of examples of the hate speech uh, and incitement to genocide. Now, these are from um, ANC political leaders, like here's one ANC councillor, uh, Becca Nokosi Mavalasi. Uh, on his social media, he posts, kill the Boer, kill the farmer. Vilapi Komalo of the Gauteng Arts and Culture Department, ANC leader, I want to cleanse this country of all white people. White people in South Africa deserve to be hacked and killed. You must be bushed alive, whatever that means, and skipped.
you dropping it. I'm sorry? Yeah, a couple Did of times. You, yeah, you just dropped out. It said we had a poor connection. I don't know let, if they're messing with us, but... Uh, let me just... Let me repeat that then. Vilapi Kumalo of the Gauteng Arts and Culture Department said, I want to cleanse this country of all white people. White people deserve to be hacked and killed. You must be bushed alive and skinned and your offspring used as garden fertilizer. Uh, here's another uh, ANC government employee, Lavoyo Maximezua. I want, I hate white people. Just get me a bazooka or AK-47 so I can do the right thing and kill these demon-possessed humans. So uh, those are just some. Uh, here's another compilation of quotes and policies from ANC government leaders. Now, bear in mind, these are government leaders. I don't know if any of your elected government leaders in, in Britain could get away with making statements like this. Uh, well, maybe they could, but not if it was referring to another race. Here's a quote. All white people are criminals and should be treated as criminals. We need to take all their property, deny them job opportunities, treat them as second-class citizens. White people are evil dogs and cowards. We need to sing songs about how they should be mowed down and murdered. White people are in a minority, and that means they must have fewer rights than the rest of us. Absolutely, that's how democracy works. If they dare to protest against these views, we must keep their mouths shut because they're racists and they're simply getting what they deserve. Now, all that's quote, unquote, these are from ANC government leaders. And we had the president of South Africa, Saul Ramaphosa, in America, at the United Nations on a foreign visit. We're now talking about 2018, he was asked about the farm murders in South Africa, and he responded, there are no farmers being murdered in South Africa. No white farmers are being murdered in South Africa. Now, that's quote, unquote. He specified there's no murder of farmers in South Africa, no murder of white farmers in South Africa. He corrected himself to just be more specific. Well, we've got a lot of documentation. Uh, quite aside from the fact that the police document uh, thousands of murders of uh, farmers since 1994. There's a book that came out just a couple of years ago, Kill the Boer. Ernst Roots of Afroforum brought out this shockingly documented book with lots of graphs and stats and details about these brutal, brutal farm attacks. And so uh, just, uh, just some of the examples of it. Uh, there's this 86-year-old um, farmer from Hattabia Sport who was attacked on his farm the day before the book was launched. He was dragged into the room where his wife was sleeping, hit over his head with a knob carry. Uh, of course, they wanted his wife to see him being being attacked. And the various tortures that are on there, and one doesn't even want to get into it, but for example, uh, Sue Howarth, murdered when attackers opened fire on her and her husband while they were sleeping, or Roger and Christine uh, Solik, uh, who experienced such uh, uh, torture that the judge during the sentencing said a great man of rage and venom was evident in the crime scene. Or 66-year-old Dries Steenkamp, who was shot dead in his farm outside Leidenburg. Or Vanessa Stalfew, whose three- and five-year-old children ran into darkness after they saw their mother murdered in front of them. Or Johannes Stradum, whose skull was cracked with a piece of metal after which he was dragged behind his bucky on a dirt road until he died of a burst liver. Or a mother who lost the will to live after a 21-year-old son, Carl Stoltz, was murdered on a farm close to Blumfontein. 
or Ati Pothita, who was stabbed 151 times with a panga garden fork and a knife. And after that, after they had to watch it, he then, they then murdered his wife and two-year-old little daughter. And there's so many hideous stories that you, uh, it, it really is akin to Hellstorm in describing the demonic, savage, hatred, and sadistic uh, torments that are foisted on people whose only crime is that they're white and that they're farmers and that they're providing the food that feeds the nation. And the Kill the Boer book reveals accounts of direct involvement of members of the ruling ANC, that's African National Congress, that's a Marxist party that is in alliance with the Southern Communist Party and rules this country. And the South African police service has been implicated in the planning and execution of many of these attacks. And we have photographs taken by surveillance cameras on some of the farms where you can see the attackers who are well-armed, well-organized, and sometimes in large groups. We're talking about sometimes groups of over 24 or more coming to attack a single farm. And they've got cell phone jammers. Now, this is a, a military-grade backpack with, with rods sticking up aerials. And it's it's a ability to jam any cell phone uh, going out or in, which means when the farm starts to come under attack and a farmer or his wife, normally it would be his wife who's doing the call for help while he mans the firearms and tries to defend against the attack, uh, that those phone calls would be jammed. Now, who has access to military-grade uh, cell phone jammers and weapons? There have been numerous times when the farmers have been attacked and the farmers have uh, managed to uh, uh, kill or capture the uh, assailants, defend themselves successfully, and it's been found out that the attackers included a police inspector, a national intelligence service uh, agent, uh, police officers, South African National Defence Force soldier, South African National Defence Force national uh, non-commissioned officer, national South African National Defence Force commissioned officer, and uh, we've we've had numerous cases where it was plainly government involvement. Now, of course, you've got the government who would be able to say, well, you know, maybe they were rogue. Well, maybe that can happen, but every time how, how many times over uh, can this just be a rogue agent so uh, we've got a, a place called um, uh, it's a, a, a demonstration on the side of the national road called plus murder or farm murders and they've planted a cross for every one of those who have been murdered and they've got names and dates on uh, on the uh, crosses the white crosses and uh, there's over 4,000 crosses there. Uh, we have just newspapers. Uh, one newspaper headline here, 56 hours, six attacks, two murders. And uh, according to this newspaper headline, South Africans killed at a rate of war. In fact, we are losing more farmers murdered than we lost soldiers on the war during the 26 years war we had in Southwest Africa, Angola, fighting the Cubans and Soviets in Angola, we lost less men every month, every year in the whole war than we're losing to farmer tax here. And of course, the number of farmers is few. Back when Nelson Mandela became president of South Africa in 1994, we had 
70,000 white commercial farmers, 70,000 farmers. And they fed 100 million people. Now, that's back when South Africa's population was 28 million. So we had 70,000 farmers feeding 100 million people, which was four times more than the population of South Africa. Today, the population of South Africa is over 60 million. So the population has more than doubled since 1994. And the number of farmers has decreased to under 30,000. I think it's less than 26,000 white commercial farmers at this moment. And so right now, those farmers are still feeding 40 million people, but we've got 60 million, not 40 million in the country. And so for the first time in history since the ANC took over, South Africa has to import food. We used to be a net food exporter. Right now, uh, the when it comes to uh, murders and so on, they say the most dangerous country in the world is Honduras. The most dangerous city in the world is Caracas. But uh, while you've got the amount of murders they have, like Honduras has 90 murders per 100,000 per year, Caracas has 119 murders per 100,000 per year, but you get something commercial farmers, it's 220 murders per 100,000. So we actually are having double as many murders of farmers in South Africa than the most dangerous city in the world, Caracas, uh, which is uh, on the listing there. Uh, here's one uh, farm murderer who was convicted in court. Now, almost all of these people are, are captured by other farmers in the area or captured by the farmer who's defending himself. This one uh, convicted farmer, he said he hates whites and murdering them is just like going to work. He said to, to kill a farmer is just like work for me. And uh, literally, that's the mentality. And yet, our police commissioner, Sele, uh, he has said publicly that uh, Farm murders aren't a problem, and he refuses to make it a priority crime. Like cash and transit robberies, they made a priority crime, task force and so on. In fact, the government went even further than that. They actually dismantled the farmers' own protection system, which is called the commandos. Now, the commandos has been going on for 300 years, and it started in the early 1700s. We had, for 300 years, commandos, which were basically self-protection units organized by farmers where they banded together to mutually protect these remote rural uh, areas, which are, are quite vulnerable in some ways. And the commanders did a very good job. And so under Tabu Mbeki, back in 2003, he dismantled and disarmed the commandos. And the farm murders just spiraled out of control, uh, escalated after that. So any form of justice is incredibly rare. The criminal justice system in South Africa is spectacularly failing to effectively prosecute most of the perpetrators of these attacks. And for example, when they do get somebody who is convicted of having tortured farmers to death, murdering their children, murdering uh, the grandparents and things like this, the average sentence is 15 years. And they can be out in six years un under that system. That's the kind of frivolousness that they look at this. Here's a um, uh, farm murderer who uh, he, he murdered a one-year-old on her first birthday with a shot to the head and uh, wiped out her entire family and, and so on. And uh, when he was in court, uh, he said, I killed him because they were white. And he was unrepentant about that. Uh, another uh, murderer that um, was captured for farm attacks, uh, this is in 2009. One of the men arrested, uh, he had actually uh, shot dead Dr. Warwick Anthony, a famous, Dr. Warwick Anthony uh, uh, Dorning, who is a, a famous history expert on, on the Southern Bush War. And he was murdered, 
and one of the arrested men was the Howick police inspector, Michael Sokela. Uh, so a police inspector was convicted of, uh, of that murder. And we've got so many cases of, of this. And yet, despite the government using hate speech, uh, you would wonder, why is Genocide Watch not screaming from the housetops about what's going on in South Africa? Because by every definition of what genocide is, we, we qualify. It's the intention uh, to kill uh, in whole or in part uh, any group of people, classification, symbolization, discrimination, dehumanization, organization, polarization, preparation, extermination, denial. All of these are uh, actually present in South Africa right now. We're seeing an increase in attacks, an increase in uh, murders. Uh, but one thing that is absolutely extraordinary is that despite the attackers having the advantage of surprise and having the advantage of numbers and uh, uh, normally an overwhelmingly greater number of weapons and very advanced weapons and so on, uh, most attacks fail. And the farmers are naturally more and more alert and very much uh, prepared, even though they don't know when the attacks are going to uh, be, but, but we've got uh, uh, vastly more attacks than we actually have successful murders. So I've got some statistics here, and these statistics are, are uh, different because they're from different areas, and the government refuses to release statistics on farm murders. So the Transvaal Agricultural Union, which is just one province in South Africa, Transvaal Agricultural Union, between 1991 and 2009, recorded over 2,070 attacks, 1,266 murders. Okay, that's uh, up till 2009. Now, the South African Agricultural Union recorded over 10,150 farm attacks and 1,541 murders between 94 and 2008. Now, that means that the vast majority of attacks are failing. Now, some attacks managed to kill two, three, four, sometimes the entire family. And so most attacks actually fail and farmers are fighting back. And there's an extraordinary amount of cases where even when the farmers are overwhelmingly outnumbered, the farmers often win and either chase off the attackers or, or manage to kill them. And uh, sometimes farm uh, supporters, uh, neighbors come to their support and there's mutual help. And sometimes they've captured the farm attacks there's a case that I remember in, in, in KwaZulu-Natal where it was sugarcane plantation. The farmer was attacked. He knew he couldn't use the cell phone because of the cell phone jammers, but he had shortwave radio. And the shortwave uh, radio called the neighboring farmers. They blocked the way out. And uh, when these farm attackers were fleeing in the car and they saw these uh, pickup trucks blocking the way with these farmers with their rifles and shotguns standing there, um, they realized they, they couldn't escape. They abandoned the car and they ran into the sugarcane. Well, the farmer who owned that sugarcane field said, burn it. Now, I don't know if anyone of our listeners has seen this, but when you light sugarcane, it's very explosive. And it, it, it sort of explodes like um, uh, napalm's just been dropped. And they burned out those those attackers. Those those four attackers uh, got burned out in, in that field uh, because the farmer concerned was willing to sacrifice his his field of, to catch those those uh, attempted murderers. So you do get uh, resistance. And it's extraordinary that on most attacks, 
the people are managing to to actually um, uh, either chase the tax way or, or, or neutralize the threat to kill the attackers. There are books that document this. I've mentioned the Killer Boer. There's also Land of Sorrow, which was compiled by Major General Chris Van Sale and Dr. Dirk Herman, and they document names, places, details. Uh, it's horrific. I've got it. I haven't been able to wade through much of it because it's it's so heartrending. And uh, there are names, the faces, the pictures, the details of the people who've been murdered, just so that there's a memorial uh, to people like Corin van der Westhuizen, who was stabbed 70 times. 70 or uh, the um, blowtorch used uh, on, uh, and, and drill on Nikki Simpson, a 64-year-old farmer. Uh, and uh, some of the most lovely people, young children, or uh, <clears throat> this little a girl, Wilhelmine Potkita, two years old, murdered uh, 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 after seeing her father hacked to death with a panga. She is shot in the head. Uh, you know, beautiful little girls, lovely people. Uh, and then there's the farmers who survive, who are um, traumatized uh, physically, crippled uh, in many cases. So we're talking about thousands of farmers. When you bear in mind, we've only got 30,000, well, more like 26,000 farmers right now. At the loss of 4,000 farmers and their family members in the last 25-odd years is absolutely staggering. You just think of the percentage of that, the, the percentage of those farmers that are being murdered uh, compared to um, any other side of society. So this is horrific. And the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry calculates for every farm attack not even murder, just farm attack, it costs the economy over 2 million rand because uh, of the farmers are key uh, employers. They are important to the uh, external debt, to um, exports, uh, the balance of payments, and a whole lot of other things like that. Um, we, I'm, I'm just looking here at, at a picture of three unrepentant characters who dragged uh, this, this farmer... Uh, Mr. Van der Merwe of Otterstal, one and a half kilometers behind his vehicle uh, on the road until he was uh, in pieces. And uh, the uh, mentality of people who can rejoice in this and laugh at this and the farmers uh, work to have them disarmed. According to the definition of genocide in the, um, the Convention uh, Against Genocide, Article 2, killing of members of the group, causing bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Uh, and so uh, right there on these sort of definitions, uh, acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. And that's the definition created by the United Nations in 1948. And so geno, race, side, killing, genocide, race killing, uh, kill the farmer, kill the Boer. When Julius Malema was challenged by a high court that this was hate speech, um, he was told to change it. So he says uh, he has changed it. Instead of saying kill the Boer, kill the farmer, he's saying kill the Boer, kill the white farmer in case somebody misunderstands that he might mean a black farmer. And so... Uh, then still are singing, kill a Boer, now kill a Bono, uh, which is the white, kill a white man. And 
previous ANC president, uh, bring, uh, Jacob Zuma, used to have his favorite song was Bring Me My Machine Gun. Julius Malema, the head of the EFF, is Kill the Boy, Kill the Farmer. And would you believe our Minister of Safety and Security, that's what they call what used to be the Minister of Police, Charles Nakula, who at that time was chairman of the Southern Communist Party as well, he said, if you don't like the attacks, leave South Africa. If you don't like the attacks, leave South Africa. Bear in mind the whole background to this is that they are trying to push through an expropriation of land without compensation, decolocalization, like what Stalin and Lenin did to the Ukrainian farmers in, in Russia, and uh, like what Mugabe did to the 5,600 white farmers in Zimbabwe. And uh, so we've had um, submitted to The Hague already as early as 2011 a complaint against the Nas African National Congress Party and the government of South Africa uh, for genocide being orchestrated, perpetrated, protected, planned, defended, uh, and actually working to disarm the very people who have been targeted for genocide. And uh, I don't know that the Hague International Criminal Court has done anything about that, even though this complaint's been lodged with them since 2011. So, um, Andrew, I, there's a lot more I can say on this, but let me hand back to you to answer any questions that might have arisen or be arising in people's minds as to what is going on in South Africa in targeting farmers for farm torture and genocide right now. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And what I've done is, of course, that story about white farmers um, uh, burning a police vehicle. I went into Google and I typed in South Africa white farmers burn police vehicle. And you get all these articles coming up, uh, including uh, The Independent in the UK, uh, and hmm. they're all basically, uh, in an earlier court hearing last week, a group of white farmers stormed the court and burned a police vehicle. But then we've got a BBC article, which is always going to be interesting. And this is October the 7th, so a couple of weeks ago. Uh, first line, South Africa's government has condemned an anarchic protest by white farmers who stormed a court building and burned a police vehicle on Tuesday. Note the word white is in lowercase. OK, so uh, <laughs> there you go. That's the BBC for you. And, and also I would throw in very quickly, we see what's going on with these Black Lives Matter protests and whatever they do, they don't appear to be arrested. Um, we've yes. you know, People seem to think that South Africa is like just a, an isolated area where this is going on. It's not going to happen in the West. Well, you look at what's been happening with these riots and you look at something like Noel Ignatieff, this uh, American uh, professor... The goal of abolishing the white race is on its face so desirable that some may find it hard to believe that it could incur any opposition other than that from committed white supremacists. Keep bashing the dead white males and the live ones and the females too until the social construct known as white race is destroyed. Not deconstructed, but, but destroyed. And this was put in Harvard magazine in 2002. Uh, so you can see where they're going with all this stuff. And the question that I had... Uh, Peter, we've got about five minutes left, but was um, you said that originally, I think pre-ANC, was it 70,000 farmers that you had in, or was it 78,000? That, that is correct. We had 70,000 70, 70, right. farmers and we're down to 26,000 now. Now, 4,000 have been killed. So what happened That's to correct. the other 40? 
I'm wondering well, if they... some may have died of natural causes, but a lot have, of course, sold up and, and emigrated. So That's we've got vast amounts of white South African farmers who are uh, who've moved to Australia or New Zealand or Canada and, uh, and uh, even Zambia and they're helping other people but they're not helping our country so that's left behind how many hundreds of thousands of unemployed people not to mention millions who are not getting food from our own farmers anymore yes well that's so important folks so you can see that uh, you know so many have you know some of them will have died as Peter said of old age but you're talking about uh, thousands, tens of thousands that have just, you know, they've just upped and left because they saw the writing on the wall. So, you know, nothing, you don't hear any stories about this. And, you know, if people were being forced to leave their own country for fear of their own safety, this is the sort of thing that the Amnesty International would be jumping up and down about. But you never hear anything about white people from Amnesty International. Yes, uh, this this is, it, it reminds me again of all those farmers and estate owners in East Prussia and Silesia who just lost their farms just like that uh, at a stroke of a pen because of Yalta Agreement in 1945. Uh, well, that's going to be go to the Soviet Union or to Poland, and uh, that's it. And the dispossession of people, just because they were German, they were the wrong nationality, so you could just take their farms or take their homes. And, you know, that was also Versailles Treaty. At the, the signing of the Versailles Treaty in 1919, all German farmers any property in the whole of German Southwest Africa, uh, East Africa, Tanganyika, and so on, it was just forfeit. And the British government just seized the farms and homes uh, of uh, people just because they were German. So this has happened before. And, uh, of course, it's swept under the carpet of most textbooks, but uh, it's now happening to us. And I must say, living in the midst of this, and I must minister to these people as a missionary. And you can imagine... It's every single night is terror. And the children know it, and everyone lives under this. And, and uh, I don't know if the people in Britain realize this is the consequence of your British foreign officers' policies of putting people like Mugabe and Mandela in power. Back to you, Andrew. Well, I'm always reminded of that clip that I've never been able to find of our then Home Secretary under Tony Blair, Jack Straw, uh, furiously shaking Mugabe's hand when he was sat in that chair. And then the Labour Party had to justify this by saying that he didn't know who he was, so they had to go down the line of, you know, he was black. So uh, I got confused with another black person. They all looked the same. So that was a bit very bitter pill for the Labour Party to swallow. But it was the only way that they could justify it, because, of course, back then it wasn't quite as uh, left-wing as it is today. And there was some pushback in the mainstream media about the way that Mugabe was treating the farmers. And he was looked upon as a evil dictator rather than the way he is today. Are you, are you familiar with that footage, Peter? Uh, no, I'm not. Although I'm, a, I'm aware of a straw which speaks about the kind of lack of backbone. But yes, um, I'm afraid uh, the British Foreign Office is so hideous. When I went to Northern Ireland as a guest of Ian Paisley, he greeted me to his pulpit saying uh, that this brother's from Rhodesia and he said uh, he understands what uh, is going on here in Ireland because what the British Foreign Office did to Rhodesia is what the British Home Office is doing to us in Northern Ireland. And I remember that introduction. What on earth goes on? It seems that Marxists have infiltrated a lot of government departments and are working at wiping out your own people. Uh, back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, that's the way it goes. And you look at uh, that last uh, visit to South Africa, Theresa May, 
and she was jumping around dancing with these people after it had been cut out that they were going to take white people's land without compensation. Uh, and nothing was said about it. It was astonishing and extremely embarrassing for myself and many uh, people in Britain who are listening uh, that that could happen. But of course it does, and the media's controlled, so they just report what they want to report. And unless you follow um, programmes like this and other good programmes in the alternative media and the excellent websites that Peter offers and his information, you're not going to hear about it. So you've got to go out and work to get your information because you're not going to get it from the sources that we are told are providing it so peter before we go can you let the audience know where they can find your work yes so uh, this um situation we living under uh, inspired me to write the book security and survival handbook uh, which deals with case studies and practical things one can do to protect one's farms one's homes one's churches and missions all of which are targets for these marxist mass murdering demon possessed thugs um so if you go to our Frontline Mission SA.org website, FrontlineMissionSA.org, you'll see articles that I've written on these things and on uh, also some audios and videos of, uh, so if you can actually see some of the pictures of what we're dealing with. But farms and freedoms are under fire in South Africa. Uh, we are facing second phase, phase of the revolution. Uh, this is a Marxism uh, in all its ugliness. And we need to also understand that what they're doing here in South Africa is actually just a test case for what they plan to do in all of Europe. And I, I, I can see they're wanting to make you a minority in your own country where you are targeted for genocide. And that's not too hard a word because that's what they want. They are talking about it. And, and Andrew quoted from that. There's, there are many who are talking about genociding white Christian Europeans. We are apparently the worst people on the planet, wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, you know, the people who built the cathedrals and invented just about everything that modern society is built on. Apparently, we are not a, a help. We're, we're a problem. And uh, those people who, who hate God uh, obviously hate those people that God has blessed and used over the centuries. It's important to know history, and it's important to know how to resist them. So Nehemiah 4.14 says, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. God bless you for all that you do, Andrew. God bless your listeners. And let's all do something to resist uh, the brainwashing and to speak up for these people who are being targeted for destruction in South Africa. Thank you so much, Peter. And God bless all of uh, you in South Africa who are suffering, all those at Peter's Frontline Fellowship Ministry. And uh, the survival... Um, sorry, the Security and Survival Handbook that Peter mentioned. I've actually read that. It's a fantastic book, and folks, it's going to be suitable for wherever you are in the world. You aren't going to get somebody who's uh, under so much pressure as Peter, someone living in South Africa. So that's going to be the great source of uh, security and survival, someone that's under so much attack that we've talked about today. So I want to thank Peter so much for joining me today. You have been listening to the real story of farm murders and genocide in South Africa. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now. Bye.